A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast, tackling choicey adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. Right now we're discussing chapters 13 through 19, Golden Sun, the second book in the Red Rising series by Pierce Brown. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You can think of us as your drunk weekly book club. Usually, I am the novice in this book club, but Crossland just entirely fucked up that reading and had to do it again. So, uh, welcome. I am the expert now. <laughs> the, maybe the reading expert, but I'm still going to go with the uh, the fiction fiction experts in a different hand here. Mm. So uh, today we're breaking down chapters 13 through 19. This is a large swath of part two break. So we've we've got one more chunk of this that we'll tackle next week, but that'll be the end of part two. So this is just the majority of the second part of this book. But before we talk about that, let's talk about what we're drinking. So today I don't have a sour. It's something else. Oh, oh. Oh, I decided to go with tequila and it is a drink I've never had before, but I, I think I might've mentioned it last episode. I got a new cocktail book and this is called the Batanga. It is two ounces of tequila, one ounce of lime juice, and then topped off with ice and cola and then a salt rimmed glass. It's fine. It's kind of weird. <laughs> I don't think I'll make it again, but it looks cool. And, hmm. uh, that's what matters, right? Yeah, that is the only thing that matters when it comes to uh, to cocktails, for yeah. sure, is that it looks really good. I mean, it's not gross by any means, but it's not amazing either. Maybe I've got ratios wrong. Maybe I don't have high enough quality tequila to go with Coca-Cola somehow. Mm-hmm. Or or the wrong cola. Maybe it's it's got to be Fago or RC. <laughs> anyway, following that up, I've got... A pastry sour from Inbound called Midnight Berry. Wait, wait, wait. A pastry sour? Yeah. Okay, you got to explain a little bit of like what that is. All right, let me read the bottom of this can. Okay. Brewery or pastry? (laughs) The pastry sour series is a collection of beers inspired by the display case at your favorite bakery. Sweet, tart, and sometimes a la mode. So it's Mm -hmm. it's a sour with lactose. That clicks with me. I'm just like pastry stout is this whole new thing that like I'm understanding. Yeah. I'm actually having a really good one tonight. You are. Um, you told it's me amazing. Which one you're I just off I just took a little sip as you were talking about your beer, Such and I am fucking beer. so excited. All right. Anyway, let's let's uh, talk about yours. What have you got? Yeah, yeah. So I also I made a kick-ass cocktail this week after a couple of weeks of just like roughing it with with other shit. Actually, the low red's pretty decent, but I'm having a grapefruit Manhattan, which is pretty delicious so far it was a request from my uncle matt to uh drink something with bourbon on the show because he lives in kentucky has lived there for a bit and uh is a bit of a bourbon head yeah, so we haven't for for how much we like bourbon we haven't had bourbon on the show very much i know i know we we drank it at first a lot when we were doing practice episodes but not at all in anything we put out so this is made with russell bourbon which is pretty good 
um, all told. It's uh, also, so it's two ounces of bourbon, one ounce of sweet vermouth, uh, two splashes of bitters, and an orange garnish. Mm. I used grapefruit bitters. Okay. And so kind of spun in the grapefruit direction. I maybe would have garnished with a grapefruit wheel instead, but this is definitely one of the tastier cocktails I've made in a while. Very, very good. Nice. To follow that up, I'm having Falling Knife's Mom Shoulders. What's it called? Fun Mom uh, Shoulders. Fun Mom Shoulders, which is so good. It's It's a pastry stout. It's delicious. If I remember correctly, it's maple and vanilla and hazelnut. Yes, it's just amazing. I actually I just took a sip of my cocktail and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is really good. And then I just smelled this and I'm like, I don't want to drink anything else. Okay, we're good. Um, We're here. I just want that. Two days, uh, what, a couple weeks ago, two days Mm -hmm. back to back, Kaylin and I had uh, fun mom shoulders and then morning delight from Toppling Goliath, which is always highly regarded and highly sought after as far as stouts goes, but very, very similar adjuncts and styles and everything. Mm -hmm. Fun mom shoulders is hands down better just in every way. Well, high kudos, high praise, the people at Falling Knife, all of them. Just mm-hmm. so good. Yeah. We are now adding um, this new very brief section that we talked about adding previously last week's predictions. So what we're going to go through is like a lightning round of what the predictions were. If PJ got it right, I drink. If PJ answered and the question wasn't answered, nobody drinks. If, he, if you got it wrong, you drink. Yeah. I think if we push, we both drink just because that keeps keeps it going. So the first question was. How do you think the Suns will react to Darrow's choice not to bomb the gala? Uh, You said poorly. We don't get an answer here because we don't interact with the Suns at all. Moving on to the next one. Mars now has a small civil war on its hands between the Augustans and the Bolognas. Where does that go? You said. I said that Darrow will regain his position as Lancer for at least a little while, which happened. Yeah, in a kind of like sidesteppy way, it definitely Occurred. <laughs> yep. Um, almost almost kind of didn't occur, but it definitely happened. So for that, I take a drink. Thank you. Um, Augustus wants to be a king. Do you think he should be allowed to be? No, no, I don't. Uh, also, that question sucks. <laughs> yeah, we, we just straight up agreed to kind of like skip this question because it was just kind of a bad question. Looking back at it, it's an interesting conversation point, but it's not a good prediction question. So we will try to keep them less general, more direct. The question on Mustang, is she going to be able to side with her family or with the or is she going to side with her family or with the society slash Octavia? And you said that she's been working for her family the entire time playing Cassius, which I think which is fair to say I'm correct. True. Definitely true. So far as we know right now, that seems to be the way it is. Even their references to the game that they're playing, etc. Cool. Mm-hmm. Final question was the Jackal lays out a plan to buy out Darrow's contract to make him a vassal, his partner in the whole operation. The question really was, who do you think the mysterious backer is? And I said Mustang and we didn't yep. get an answer. So that is our lightning round of questions. Um, next week, we won't be explaining it quite as tightly, so it should go faster. With that, let's talk about chapters 13 through 19. Chapter 13 here is just just good it's just so good. All This entire section is just brutal in different ways throughout. It's so interesting. Mad Dog specifically, you know, his Darrow's plan to win back his position with the governor and start a civil war among the golds seems to have gone off without a hitch. You know, we get a couple of violent scenes as they're running away. His friends all make it out of the bloodbath, mostly unscathed, except for Tactus, who's bleeding a bit, got some holes in him. Victor pokes him, so he shuts up in one of his holes at one point. It's funny. <laughs> um <laughs> But uh, but something interesting happens, you know, other family feuds find satisfaction tonight and there's no mercy for the gold children. 
they're not seen as innocent, but as enemy seeds. And I just, we got to talk about how fucked golds are, man. Yeah, they are pretty ruthless. And I think we knew that. Look at the Institute. Look at the entirety of the first book here and what they subject their children to. <laughs> yeah, but this is like open warfare, you know? I think it's surprising in a way just because it's almost total open warfare. It's definitely jarring and it's definitely different, but I absolutely believe the Golds would resort to things like killing the children of their mortal enemies. Yeah, I mean, an entire family gets wiped out tonight, right? They mention, I think, House Thorn is the, the family that just gets completely obliterated. It's two houses from Earth. One is House Thorn, and I don't think the other one goes named. I mean, it, it definitely brings up almost sort of Game of Thrones-esque, like, royal family feuds where, like, you can't leave any heirs to, like, any rightful heirs alive. Mm-hmm. If you want to take over an area. Yeah, definitely. And I think what's super interesting is that on top of that, you layer in on top of the Game of Thrones families, you layer in a lot of like money and like big capitalistic architecture. And Mm -hmm. it just complicates it even worse because, you know, each of these families are also a business in some way. You know, the Augustans own a fuck ton of reds on Mars than mine helium three, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. including Darrow's family. That's why we're here. Yep. So. Welcome Um, to the book series. (laughs) Welcome to the series. There's an aerial assault that happens shortly thereafter with obsidians, gold captains, and the new Rage Knight kind of crashing into the down, the thump, 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 um, which I absolutely love. We find out that the Rage Knight is a familiar face, and it's it's Fitchner. Absolutely, it's Fitchner. (laughs) It is. I uh, today actually, while I was working for a while, I was also like re-listening to this section on the audiobook just to kind of freshen up because I had finals and this exchange with Fitchner, like this entire chunk, is so much better in audiobook form. I know we've been sucking the dick of the like (laughs) (laughs) of the reader of the audiobook, but. It is so Tim Gerard Reynolds. fucking good. Tim Gerard Reynolds, text me. Text yeah. me back. He can be on the podcast or he can just like send me a, I don't know, record my outgoing message or something. That makes sense. That makes sense. It's it's just so, so good. Like it is. Fishner here is so reminiscent of Severo and you kind of see where he gets it from, like where Severo gets it from, because now he's not he's not in like a formal capacity. He also feels empowered by his new position, obviously. Mm-hmm. I love the line. You've got your lines that you love. I love fortune favors the nasty. Just kind of that that nice little spin on the colloquialism. It's great. Yeah, you you had mentioned that one. My favorite, especially after listening to the audiobook, was mm, no, you're creepy when he was addressing the jackal. Yeah, when he just like absolutely knocks him out with a stun fist. Yeah, shoots him in the uh, chest with a stun fist. The the entire thing. Like, who's going to come back and explain what happened to Octavia? Um, And Augustus steps up and he's like, eh, nope. (laughs) Drops him. And then Jackal's like, well, well, I'll do it. And then he's like, "Mm, nope, you're creepy. (laughs) Shoots him. It's that was that was one of my favorite exchanges of the series so far. But that said, Fitchner definitely is a different like a lot of who he is. He stayed true to himself to a certain extent, but. His ego is a little bit out of control in his new position, and it seems like a lot of what made him approachable and likable before was the fact that he was a little bit perturbed with the fact that he couldn't move forward beyond where his station in life was. So now mm-hmm. now that he has, he doesn't have a whole lot setting himself apart from the rest of the gold society. He kind of seems more or less like a typical gold at this point. 
Yeah, he he definitely has that. And I feel like that's where I think he he decided. That's why I really like the fortune favors the nasty quote is that's kind of the end. So like he's been like hooking up with a bunch of golds. Like he's never he's like, I've never been laid by so much golden stock. You know, there's just so much so much else that's there that clearly wasn't there before. And I feel like fortune favors the nasty then feeds into the next bit where it goes to the great warriors. You know, he strafes Fitner, Fitchner with his eyes, which you are not Fitchner. What did you promise the sovereign for your new helmet? I'm sure the price was high. And it was basically Darrow got him the helmet, technically speaking. But he did have to. It sounds like he did have to duel both Tactus's older brother and Proctor Jupiter because he, he goes like, hello, Jekyll, you little rug rat. Then there was the <laughs> damn contest and all. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's good. He's just jovial. He's joking around and he's kind of like he's playing this off as a bunch of theater. And he's like, obviously, I was going to win because I'm finally getting my chance to shine and showing all you fucks that while I might have an ugly ass face, I, I'm like worth more, which also like just makes him a regular gold. The amount of posing that happens. <laughs> Is yeah, a little strikes a pose. It, yeah, it's it's totally like straight out of Dragon Ball Z to me. Like yeah, bad anime exactly. pose. Like, <laughs> exactly. He's like shaking his it's, hips at one so point. The, the only other point that I really want to talk about here inside of this chapter is the sort of honorifics of the position. Right. So we get a little bit there of the Olympic Knights. We defend society's compact, subservient only to duty, and I think that really kind of paints the picture of what we should expect from the 12 Olympic Knights. Uh, right? I don't know if it does. Right. I think that's how it's officially stated, but they seem to be... Like, I, I think earlier when we were talking, you mentioned that they're kind of similar to Supreme Court justices. I think I just said justices, but yeah. Like, either way. Oh, either way. But they're supposed to be completely unbiased, but clearly there can be, in, in this situation at least, they are strictly kind of at the whim of the sovereign. I guess it's it's also posed by Darrow in the next chapter, and we can talk about it a little bit more when we get there, where he kind of says, well, what if she was breaking society's compact? You know, would you... Because she did break society's compact. You know, when a duel starts, you're not supposed to change the fucking rules. You can't. I should have his head. And he's like, well, we are supposed to enforce it. But like, also, I have to listen to her. So, you know, there's there's kind of that dualistic problem, which I, I find really interesting in kind of the, the context. But yeah, I find it interesting. It's kind of repeated a couple of times here throughout the section in the next section that they're there to defend society's compact. I mean, kind of like if you were to look at the rules, think about D&D. There are people who play rules as written and people who play rules as intended, who kind of like and the it's the spirit of the rule versus the absolute letter of the rule. And they can very wildly differ just based on wording. And I'm wondering if that's kind of the situation they're in as it's set up and intended. They are supposed to be unaffected by the sovereign and her choices and mm-hmm. what she says. But as it's written, she probably technically has authority over them. Yeah. And there's clearly like also fierce loyalty among one of the other knights, Aja, who is also a fury, which is an interesting overlap to think about, too. Like the furies might be the attendants, but the knights might be like the closest people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or the knights are the justices, but the furies are the attendants, the closest people. Interesting to to think about there. I definitely agree with you. There's definitely, I think, loyalty first, society second, but they're taught society first. Society above everything. Yeah, I think that's the quote a couple of times. So with that, uh, Dara and Fitchner, or Dara agrees with Fitchner to go meet with Sovereign. We go into chapter 14, Sovereign. I think we have a lot to talk about in this chapter, so let's waste no time. There's a lot 
that happens inside of the conversation between Darrow and Octavia. Hold, hold up, hold up one second. Before we get into this, I'm going to explicitly waste some time. Listeners, Crossland and I have had discussions about the pronunciation of the word S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N. I have always said sovereign. He seems to bounce between sovereign and sovereign. What say you and why? If you want to like just tweet at us or whatever. Yeah, just leave leave us a note because um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting point because I say sovereign when thinking about leadership but sovereign when i think about nations uh <laughs> we've got we've got so much to talk about inside of this chapter in, sorry sorry to well, interrupt there. there there are like two different points like right off the bat right like the very first thing that she talks about is this like farm animal story about people raising farms and like how different animals have their place and how it's not good when the brothers fight on the farm because then, you know, the chickens can look, right? Or, like, pay attention. The chickens decide that, like, hey, they're fighting, like, amongst themselves. What's going to happen if you stop laying eggs for them? Mm-hmm. I think was exactly what they had said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's, What's going to happen is you're going to become a fucking chicken dinner if you stop <laughs> laying eggs. Right, right. Then they have to go buy new chickens and everything else. And I think that's more, like... Octavia's illusion here, right, is like the infighting is a bad thing because it also shows that we aren't like unified and have strength against the lower people. Yeah, but it's still ultimately worse for the chicken that witnessed and decided that it was fine to defy them. Oh, yeah, we find that out later as well. So, yeah, (laughs) you're you're also right. This is this little paragraph sets up this entire chapter, Mm -hmm. like in terms of content. So I uh, I totally agree. It's it's very interesting. So there uh, are. there's just so much between their conversation as it goes between Darrow and Octavia. It's literally the entire chapter spanning all the way through, like, the reason that Darrow took his stand. Um, they bounce back and forth on sort of the legality, calling Cassius, like, a piece of shit, like, his stock is weak. You know, there's there's just so much, you know, from, like, ignoble. Ah, there's, there's so much, like, great language here that kind of bounces them back and forth and kind of shows and exposes Octavia's interest in her wit a lot. You know, she is, like... The commander of free society. She is, but she's also like kind of unhinged in her like need for being in charge, I guess. Like she justifies pretty much everything. Everything that she says is basically just to justify her leadership. I don't think you're far off there. Like she is justifying actions, but a lot of it's based in the compact. But once it moves away from the compact, then that's when she's just justifying her own actions, right? She at first starts with the compact and then she's like, well, it was just a bad idea strategically to let this happen. So like, yeah, I broke rules, but it's fine because it was the right thing to do. And which she's the law anyway. So whatever, whatever, whatever. I do what I want. (laughs) That was South Park, right? I think. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Uh, <laughs> there's also the like, in so many ways, you remind me of my father bit, which yeah. is the one that she beheaded, you know, yeah. like, and that's just feels very direct. Um, Yeah, she's not sort of she's really not uh, subtle about that. No, no, I, I feel like if nothing else, especially as we get into the next chapter, we we figure out that like she's not 
subtle, but she's also very practiced and in control all the time. She's not subtle, but she's not explicit either. Like she will make veiled threats, quote unquote. It's not even they're threats. I mean, we figured that out, no, but no, like no, they no, sound no. They, veiled. They are. That's what I'm saying. Like there aren't many times when she very explicitly says exactly what she's doing, but she's mm. never even when she's kind of playing coy a little bit. She's not really trying to hide her actions or intentions. Yeah. She just kind of likes wordplay. Well, and, and she likes the idea of like leaving the question in your head, which to me also doesn't feel that different from the jackal in the first yeah. book where yep. it's kind of like he's you're leaving it with just that like taunting tidbit. Right. And you're wondering what's going to happen based mm-hmm. on what was said, because you know that violent things come from what people say and what people do. So inside of this, we also really meet Aja, who's just great. One of the Sovereign's Furies. She's got a, like quiet lethal intensity to her that I really admire. She's the Protean Knight and the the last student of Lorne before Darrow, the actual last student. So mm-hmm. we know that she knows the Willow Way, that she's an absolute wizard with a sword, the razor. Until like the day before this or the day the day of this. I don't I don't know the timeline exactly of how this all went mm-hmm. down because it's kind of I mean, it's 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 jam-packed. a whirlwind. But mm-hmm. up until Darrow kind of says that Lorne had taught him, she had assumed that she was the last. Student. It all unfolds very quickly. But yeah, so like the gala dinner, the duel, the night, the rain, and then the ship. It's it's only been a couple of hours since all of this has kind of gone down, if that even. We also find out that she's the daughter of the Ash Lord who burned Rhea. So we know that she is related to a man who committed planet side. What, what the fuck do you even call that? And they're like arson. <laughs> I guess it is the burning of Rhea. So maybe it is arson. Just like a lot of it, I guess. Arson, but a lot of it. Super That's arson. Super arson. Zeroth degree arson. Yeah. Yep. She's so related to related to the baddie. What do you think of Aja? She she is hard to read. It, you you mentioned sort of the quiet intensity, and that is just kind of a perfect description of her. She is looming, but unassuming, I guess. Swift, but doesn't yep. fuck around. No, I think that's very true. And it it's kind of like she's also just skilled. In general, it's just there's so much there. I know later on from from this point, they talk about her moving with like swiftness faster than any cat. But yeah. are cats used to describe her prior to that? I feel like they are. Otherwise, I just threw out the entire reading of it. I strangely imagined her in a very similar <laughs> suit like leopard print get up no not leopard print but very similar suit to the black panther Hmm. that's interesting how i imagined her you know most people's uh like fan cast of her is the spirit i can't remember her name um the the woman who is the general in the army who has the spear throughout the whole movie that is what people okay that is who people want to play aja i could see that uh, in the eventual adaptation i could absolutely see that yeah she'd be perfect um i totally agree i don't think that there's a better but what better cast was there like descriptions of cat like anything for her before that or was i just pulling that out of thin air and it happened to kind of coincide with the description later on I know that she's described as like having ashen skin. I feel like there's something in there that relays a sharpness of like her eyes, but I'm sure there was something feline mentioned. I just don't recall what it was, but that's exactly like, that's how I imagined her. 
we do get uh, the conversation that we were talking about earlier where they talk about what's what's the duty of the Olympic Knights. It's uphold society um, and the compact. Right. And then Darrow says, well, what's the compact say on duels? Duels are to be fought by the end. and The, the terms don't change, whatever. Cassius is not dead. And so you need to bring me the head of Bologna or reject the faith of your people. No. Well, then we're not talking anymore. And Darrow's going to leave. Then she invites him to join at her house instead. Right. Right. Like a duel once begun cannot reach resolution until its terms are properly fulfilled. And then she invites him to the house, you know, yes. and ultimately she's he's like, I'm no trophy. You're not going to win me. You're not going to take me as some kind of prize for, you know, to collect because it seems like I'll take Octavia kind of collects people like her furies, even kind of like her grandson, of which also raises the question, where's his mother and father? There's a question. Yeah. Octavia and Lorne are the parent or the grandparents of this little tyke. It seems interesting. And it, it is. is kind of dropped from there. Definitely not talked about. What do you think? I think Lorne is a guy with some swagger, and he uh, willow weighed himself into the Sovereign's bedchambers. That is the most outrageously on-theme thing you've ever said. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? Okay. All right. Anyway, we're going to move on from that, as though that was not even a statement. Um, So Octavia asked the question, you know, will you join my house? He's kind of tempted, but we know the answer, obviously, is that he's not going to. She's willing to wager on her game as well, that if she loses to Darrow, she'll kill Cassius, saw off his head herself. I look forward to that happening. You think it's going to happen? No. Well, of course not. She's a dirty liar. liar. She's already proven that. (laughs) Even though this next chapter is called Truth (laughs) Trash, it has to be said up front that this chapter is incredibly tense. Chapter 15, Mm -hmm. Truth. From the jump, like from the jump, Darrow is kind of on edge thinking that she knows something about his past and who he truly is because of the what the uh, the oracles are made of. Being part of it, uh, Pit Viper. He thought it was directly a jab at him and who he really was, but it's just kind of who she's just sadistic. Yeah, no, entirely. So what's really interesting to me is it takes everything I am not to flee. What comes hissing out from the box is pulled out of a nightmare, pulled so perfectly out of the depths of my subconscious that I nearly think the sovereign knows where I come from where I truly come from, right. which is what you're saying. Yep, exactly. And I think right off the bat, that totally sets the tone. Also, a creature that is one third pit viper, one third scorpion and one third millipede is, first of all, a little bit hard to imagine. And second of all, no matter how I try to imagine it, it's fucking terrifying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, I mean, these these oracles are just horrible. So you just assume like the legs of a centipede, the body and tail of a scorpion and like a snake's face coming out of the scorpion. Like, I imagined more of like the body of a snake with kind of the center point having the millipede legs and then a very like the stinger at the end of the tail, but that tail is so long that it can really strike however however it wants. They and they each have three blind eyes, you know, it's that's weird. Mm-hmm. They move more like liquid glass, organ skeleton, visible through the skin, chitinous mouths chattering and hissing at the same time as one slithers onto the table. Yeah. Like, 
Interesting point, though. It is described Mm -hmm. as a carved creature, and I hadn't considered the idea that the carvers could carve things other than humans. Makes Mm. total sense and is probably easier than carving humans. Yeah, so either carving things together or carving things potentially out of nothing. I mean, either way. What's interesting is... Pierce Brown has set up a realistic enough universe for us to track this through and even question it in the first place because our canons of probability are in line with his. And we're like, could this be? It could be either way. What's even more interesting is this fictional lie detector test has the same vulnerabilities of real lie detectors. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You got to be really good at questioning. And also, like, they don't know how accurate it is. Like, that's actually something that's said textually is she doesn't know or they don't darrow doesn't know how accurate or how good they are at actually detecting he does feel them tense up at different times when either he doesn't give a complete answer or is withholding some truth other times it doesn't seem to catch it and he's able to be vague well it's clearly heartbeat based i don't know if it's strictly heartbeat based or if that was to feed octavia information uh yeah maybe maybe that was just for octavia Yeah, like if she's putting enough pressure on him to continue asking hard questions and if he's normalizing. Because she very clearly is capable of lying and not have her heartbeat change at all, which is interesting. So we do, we did just mention it, but Aja literally can hear his fucking heartbeat um, and calls it out throughout. Like he was resting at 29 beats when they were listening earlier. And it's like, oh, cool. So you're listening to his heartbeat while they were sitting there. That's insane. It's a little creepy. She kind of sets the tone for this chapter, too. And she is she's like the pacemaker for the entire bit where she just like calls out his heartbeat randomly in response to questions. And specifically when it's interesting, though. Yeah. Not just like constantly. She's not like a heartbeat monitor. But when she notices like abnormalities, she'll make note of it. The oracles unravel and sting you if you lie, driving you mad. That's the game that they're ultimately playing. This leads to a very interesting game of kind of racing truths between Darrow and Octavia. Um, We're going to run through most of them, but a couple we're not going to talk about too much. It's kind of like a game of 20 questions, but you ask them back and forth to kind of whatever you want. Um, First person to lie goes insane in a jail cell. Or eventually you just quit, maybe. Uh, The first question, Darrow wouldn't have killed her tonight. That's true. Darrow was not going to kill Octavia. That was not a part of his plans in any way, shape or form, except for the bomb. Right. Yeah. But she wasn't part of the explicit targets. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, it was designed to get close to her, but it's not like he was intending to kill her. Mm -hmm. And especially since he'd already changed his mind and his mentality about it. Yeah. Unless he was framing the question such that it was kind of after everything had broken out and all the chaos had ensued. Mm. Like his his goal wasn't to go find her in the midst of the chaos and kill her. There's a lot more that could be kind of said there, but I, I think he doesn't have any blood rage towards her. Next, we get the Pegasus necklace, which he answers, what's the pendant mean to you? Is it from your father? Looks down, spilled on my shirt. It means hope, part of my father's legacy. I think this is really indicative of who Darrow is and how good he is at truth craft, I guess would be the right way to say it. He's not technically lying, clearly, because he's not getting stung, but he's very, very good at quickly deciding what can be withheld in order to come across and give them enough information to satisfy them without actually revealing much. 
It kind of reminds me of early on as he was about to go to the Institute when he was training for the the, uh, intellect tests and uh, him being very, very good at the sort of logic puzzles that were presented to him. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Octavia played favorites with Karnas at the Academy is kind of the next question that's asked. And she did. She gave him a ship. So all kinds of people are given Bologna's advantages that they don't deserve or disadvantages that they don't deserve. I think the moral of the story here is that like power favors power to some degree. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I don't think that's really hard to believe in this society either. No, not at all. It's just that there's like this layer of this idea of like Mm -hmm. meritocracy. And then there's also the lie of the unbalance of power. Fitchner violated his oath. Like did Fitchner violate his oath cheating like everyone else did? He did violate his oath, but he wasn't paid for it. And he ultimately cheated in different ways than everyone else did. Right. So he was cheating to help Darrow, wherein everyone else was cheating all the time and were trying to help the jackal. It was it was interesting kind of seeing the side notes of this conversation where he's kind of rationalizing like, okay, I know he probably came clean about everything to her in order to get this position. So it'd be not in my best interest to lie for him in this situation. That is very interesting. Good point. I was going to say like that, that kind of says to me that he still holds an allegiance, an alliance with Fitchner. Like he was Mm -hmm. considering lying for him, but realized that he had probably already given up any of that information. So it would, it would have only hurt himself to lie. Yeah. It would have literally killed him to lie. Well, I mean, there's that, (laughs) but even having, having that sort of justification thought, Tells me, like, he probably would have thought up a sort of hide the truth answer had he Mm -hmm. thought that Fitchner was still hiding that information. Totally. It's very, very interesting on on that side of things. Uh, They briefly have like a couple of different conversations um, that that are otherwise very quick. I just want to like note them here. That way people don't think we just skipped over them. Spies in the inner circle know where to go. Lost City, work with Jackal, all all very fine. Mm -hmm. We also get the origin of Stone Sides, which is kind of just a funny aside where it's like he literally ate rocks because people challenged him to. Like it's, (laughs) it's not because he's crazy tough. It's he literally ate rocks. <laughs> Another really cool note that I, I liked here that I've missed each reread for some reason is that there are 132,000 approximately. I'm not going to say the rest out of nearly 40 million golds, which is 0.3 percent are peerless scarred. Super interesting. Yeah. What was interesting was Darrow asking that question in general. Obviously, that information will probably be relevant later, but he says like the Bureau of Statistics or whatever it was, was notoriously secretive with all their data, which seems odd. It seems strange that there's not sort of published data of the number of peerless scarred. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So the Board of Quality Control is the group who ultimately like puts people through the Institute and everything else. Um and they are very protective of it for whatever reason. I think some of that is likely so that like Reds and other people don't find out, which is also why Darrow's asking the question mm-hmm. is for the sense of Ares. And I think it also puts into context most of the characters that we see are peerless scarred. Uh, most of the main characters that are named, I don't think we know one that isn't peerless scarred. So we, we get that question. It's great. Uh, why Lauren picked Darrow? Uh, I specifically like the line. He thinks we are the same sort of man, which I think is great. It's small. It's Mm -hmm. it's a good moment. Greatest fears. Grandson. This was to Octavia. Grandson to be like her father and the inevitability of age are her two biggest fears, which is plays into events and conversations that happen a bit later. 
Correct. They do. Pretty directly. Yeah, pretty directly. So crying at the death of Julian, you know, the fact that he was too kind and didn't deserve to die. Uh, did Virginia choose to date Cassius like you didn't force her to? Yes, she did make that choice, which burns him a little bit. Uh, Why'd you? S- so it was actually, did you set them up? Yeah. Did and you it was no, that? it was her idea, which isn't no, she wanted to be with him. It's no, her, like she plotted for this is how I think. Well, yeah, yes. Yeah. In the end, that's the way that it makes well, sense. In the end, that's how it made sense. But in this conversation, I was already kind of predisposed to thinking that she was a, a snake, a snake in the weeds. <laughs> snake in the weeds. Uh, bah, bah, bah. So maybe it was just me kind of reading more into it than it was actually than what was actually there. But that's that's how I read that was mm-hmm. not that she wanted to be in a relationship with Cassius, but rather it was her idea to pose as a romantic interest in Cassius's life. Definitely which, agree with that. I mean. It, there's a subtle difference there, maybe, but I think the intention is what makes the difference. It is about the intention of her, it being completely her own idea. But also, I think that that speaks to, it does speak to the ruthlessness that you're talking about on the side of like Virginia or Mustang choosing what she wants in that way. Mm. I think it also speaks to the way that Octavia thought it would hurt Darrow to hear it delivered that way. So I, I think it's it's both sides of that or that coin. So, yeah, 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 I think it plays out both ways. So the next three, I think, go together really tightly. So I'm just going to run through them and we can kind of talk about the sequence and how they all play together. The Red Ballad to Virginia. How'd you know or why'd you what is it? It's specifically why did you sing the Red Ballad to Virginia at the Institute? Because she forgot the words. And I think it's the saddest song ever sung. He Darrow asked the question about Deep Space Command coordinates. And then how did he know the song? He heard it as a boy, which isn't a lie. It's a very close approximation. The, these are an important trio of questions because it puts the first question puts Darrow on such an edge that he decides to completely push the boundaries to ask a big fucking question. I think the fact that she went right back to it kind of she went right back to it after he asked for like explicit coordinates for command centers. Uh, she asked again about a fucking song. So she knows that is directly tied to red society and therefore the sons of aries and i think therefore these also bleed into the next three questions that you have in the uh in the notes yeah the the next three also feed into that exactly like you're asking you know the why are you questioning me question that darrow asks back she answers a fury has led me to believe sons of aries are different than we imagined he asks then back who do you think aries is octavia says your master and then she asks a question you know that question sets us on edge right like those the series of questions that happen Mm -hmm. in between those like everything is just on fire on edge we hear the heartbeat go up we get all of that stress clearly darrow's freaking the fuck out on the inside like i've been found out i can't lie but i'm gonna die aja's gonna cut my head off like any number of things are gonna go wrong she asks the wrong question yeah she does which calms him down she asks uh is augustus aries to which she very calmly and like satisfyingly says no but she knows that he had an elevated heart rate and was kind of on edge when she was 
asking about the sons of Ares. Mm -hmm. So even though she didn't get any explicit information from him, I think that's going to come back to bite him in the ass. Yeah, I, I think that it is both informative and maybe intentionally misleading because he does calm himself and bring his heart rate down, right? And Aja counts that out loud as well. Right, and then but she still sees calmly, the she still sees it go up. Yeah, yep. I I definitely agree with you. I mean, stress is going to rise at any point at that, but then he like calms down and he's able to deliver the answer to the next question. So matter of factly, Augustus Aries, no. But then we're very quickly interrupted, you know, which prevents us from getting any kind of measure on uh, on the heartbeat post that question, or even the thoughts that Darrow has post that question, because it feels like the logical next question for her would have been, well, who is? But even that question. Darrow can't answer. Oh, any other lingering thoughts on these questions before we get to the final question? Um, these questions and answers, and more importantly, his heartbeat during them are going to be, I think, very, very important going forward. Yeah, I, I definitely can understand that. I think what's really interesting, too, is I think that this for basically a conversational piece with stakes is the equivalent of the poison game and the princess bride. <laughs> amped up like 25,000 times like it is constant yes yeah yeah which i guess um, i guess is like she basically like she's immune to it it's it very it's so reminiscent of those moments if you haven't seen the princess bride what the fuck are you doing stop this go watch it um you you clearly have two hours so <laughs> it's one of the greatest pieces of filmmaking ever committed hmm I mean, it's good. Fuck off. We're not talking about it. <laughs> okay. So um, a couple more questions just on sort of the surrounding elements now we're, that we're out of the actual questions themselves. We'll talk about the final question before we go into the next chapter. What do you think Fitchner knows about Darrow given what Severo gave him and what Severo then handed on or what Fitchner then handed on to Octavia? So we know that Severo gave him some footage mm -hmm. when he was doing the editing. I don't think Fitchner would hold a secret like the uh, the bloody damn thing back. So I think Severo gave him the edited footage. I don't think he gave him the raw, the raw files. Yeah, you so think I, Fitchner's I, a piece of shit gold? At this point, yeah. Kind of. Yeah, right. Like, in I'm this not position, that's a bad read. I was just saying, like, I agree with you. Had he not kind of gained a... Uh, sort of very prominent position within the society, that answer might be different. But the fact that he did and is acting the way he is, I don't think he'd be as cool with it. And I also don't think yeah. Severo would just innately trust his father to have that information either. I can see that always. I, I think that that goes in every direction here is that like Severo doesn't know what to make of it, maybe. Um, and so secret safe with Severo. And also you've got the other part of the issue where like you don't give it to your father, obviously. And if you don't give it to the father, then the the image basically sells out that everyone knew about the cheat with Augustus more than anything else, which is kind of another reason to kill the family, you know, downplays the, the peerless scar a little bit. Octavia also mentions that she's played this game 71 times, but only one person came out that she trusted. Who do you think is the other one who got through this game? Um... We know that Fitchner didn't do it. That's the only person we know. I think it's either Nero or Aja. But I'm going to make you make a guess. You have to pick because this is going to be a prediction for later. Nero. You think it was Nero? Yep. I think Nero. That would make for an one. interesting story, wouldn't it? It would. It would. Why indeed. do you think it's Nero? Because it'd make an interesting story. 
You can't just use my out. No, no, no. That's exactly why I thought it would. Because it, because of how at odds they are right now um, and the fact that she's withholding it. I think if, yeah. it, if it was Aja, she would probably have made some sort of subtle eye motion towards Aja that wasn't intended for Darrow to see, but he would have noticed it. Maybe. I think that also, like, there, this is or really maybe a conversation she wouldn't have made point. The, she wouldn't have made the move. Aja would have. Yes. Yeah, Aja would have given it away. You're right. I was going to say, there's no way. Octavia doesn't make mistakes is the way that this this entire yeah. two chapters sets it up. Like, she's entirely intentional with everything she does. Everything is plotted and planned meticulously. I considered answering Mustang, but I don't think so. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if Mustang went through the game. I don't think so. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, we get one really cool line right before kind of the lie, which I love. Uh, but before we get to that, actually, we should talk about there are moments where, you know, the questions aren't so much about information, but like the fascination with Darrow right away that she finds kind of goes back to the collecting people thing that she does. Um, it develops such an interesting portrait of, of Octavia, like mentioning him trying to launch himself through the viewport onto the ship. Yeah. <laughs> onto Carnus's ship. Just like being fascinated with that and burning her question on that as opposed to like asking something real. Mm, but it was early on. Yeah. And I mean, it they, also they builds were, They were sort of in tandem escalating their questioning. I've been watching a lot of Jim Can't Swim and <laughs> the interrogators always start with some softball questions. If anybody is interested in like criminology, psychology stuff, check out Jim Can't Swim on YouTube. It's so fucking good. Anyway, We're rec- recommending a lot of things tonight. We are. You know, we are. <laughs> you know, uh, it's what we do. It is. It is super interesting, though. I think you're right. I think that they were kind of bouncing back and forth. But I do find her fascination with kind of Darrow's decision making to be maybe an interesting point, too. Mm-hmm. But I mean, think think about her sort of pride, I guess, in this. She's never lost. Yeah. Yep. So, so she knows she's going to get what she wants. She knows she's confident she's going to get what she wants. So uh, playing a little bit of mind games with him and telling like making him think, oh, she's not asking any hard hitting questions here. First of all, puts him off guard, which doesn't really matter. She doesn't need him to like her anyway, but maybe kind of pl- takes pleasure in him getting frustrated. So or in people getting frustrated when she questions them. So I, I think that's yeah. probably part of her tactic is a false sense of um, comfort in the game. Yeah, it's it, it's a false. It's like creating a false sense of security yeah, throughout the, exactly. the entire bit. Totally. So we end this chapter with the lie, though, uh, which is, you know, tonight at the gala during the sixth course of the meal, did you plan to allow the Bologna to assassinate Arch Governor Augustus and all those who sat at his table? Aja freezes, which means she knew. And I think that also speaks to your like reaction about Aja would be the tell, not Octavia. Right. Um, Mustang slowly turns to look at the Sovereign, who whose face shows no hints of dishonesty. The wind breathes easily and with a soft smile lies through her teeth. No, I did not. The mm-hmm. Oracle's barbed tail strikes at her flesh. Oh, so intense. And then immediately in the next, the first line, the razor comes out. Fitchner already grabs the tail of it with the razor, cuts it off before it gets anywhere near her. So something I literally just thought about. In, yep. In this line of questioning, does that mean Fitchner also knew and was prepared to react if she lied? Ooh, 
That's a really good question. Is he does he have a good enough reaction time to pull this off? I think he's got a good enough reaction time, but I also think that he's probably generally aware of the game. And so is kind of standing at attention, maybe either way, you know, Mm -hmm. that's fair. I feel like there's that element where like he would I think he would also stick his own neck out to maybe protect protect Darrow, despite, as we've mentioned before, other bits and pieces of like his gold identity. I think he would be willing to say that this is a stupid game and argue that case to the sovereign. That's fair. On Darrow's behalf, if it went the other way for some reason. Yeah, that's fair. I, I don't I don't think it's a perfect answer. I just feel like that would be the case. I do feel like he probably had his hand on his razor the, the whole time. Mm. Yeah, so makes- the game is the game for is a clever title for the three pages that is chapter 16, <laughs> considering what we know, because the, the actual game, that was the truth. This is now the game. And the chapter itself makes it very unclear about who's playing who inside of this room as the conversation goes. Kind of the questions go back and forth between Octavia and Mustang. Darrow even questions, is Octavia playing Mustang or is Mustang playing Octavia here? Like who's who's answering and responding? Who's in charge of this tennis match? The, the whole thing is very interesting. Who's pulling the strings, ultimately? We get a lot inside of this these three pages somehow. It's crazy how much storytelling is packed in. So we get an explanation for why Octavia was going to destroy House Augustus, as well as we learn about Operation Zero. Part of the reason to destroy House Augustus is because it would take so much work to uproot him off of Mars, infinite amounts of money, as well as the fact that he failed to quell a rebellion that she clicks the button, shows Operation Zero, where she's already cleaning up different terrorist cells of low colors rising up, and she's just silently dispatching them. Yeah. How'd you feel about Operation Zero? Did it explicitly say that they were all part of the Sons of Ares? I don't think so. It was kind of implied. Yep. Yep. Because I think it was specifically implied because I think he says something like he warned Harmony. Yeah, I warned Harmony. I only hope the sons aren't all lost. Things are much more involved than I think Darrow knew and much more widespread than I think any of us could have imagined. The sons of Ares are operating at a capacity that I don't think any of us really expected them to have the means of yeah yeah definitely we didn't think that it was going to go that far and that the sons of Ares were going to have that wide of an impact um but also the sort of ruthless efficiency at which octavia is able to just kind of take care of this with a wave of her hand is also very disheartening for the rebellion but i think it, it still leaves the sort of opportunity open for um i don't know the chance that other low colors saw what the sons of aries were doing and formed their own groups and acted independently mm-hmm. i'm sure that's happened oh yeah so i, I don't I'm think sure that all of I'm, these groups yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's what i'm kind of are the sons at. of aries yeah but probably a good chunk of them. Yeah, I, I definitely I definitely agree with you. I think that it's very interesting. I think that Octavio talks about like literally how the war did not end until on Rhea until she burned out 50 million people. So killing 20 at a dinner in a place where there's supposed to be no bloodshed is infinitely cheaper, infinitely more efficient and will provide a quicker solution to the problem. But she's not above burning a planet. <laughs> She's also not above burning a planet, (laughs) not above making another Alderaan. And then also we get a dispassionate argument from Mustang, who basically says that her father is an entirely different person than who he was before. And so she's okay with her 
killing him. I don't know if that's true. I don't think that he's an entirely different person than he was before. I think it's more that she is regurgitating the indoctrination that the Sovereign and Gold Society as a whole has kind of instilled in her. Ooh, okay. So I, I disagree with that, but I agree with your sentiment. So specifically what she says is when Mother was alive, he used to ride with me through the forest. We'd stop at this wild blossom clearing and lay in the flowers, arms out, pretending we were angels. That man is dead do with the new one as you like okay and so specifically breaking out those two thoughts i don't feel like she's regurgitating anything societal but i do think she's playing this conversation specifically against octavia so that she doesn't turn on to any of her plans there is a point though um what is this page 147 where she's just kind of flat with no affect. Um, uh, he is a threat to peace, Mustang said flatly, slipping the mm-hmm. ring on her finger. He disregards your orders. He does not obey financial directives. He delays helium-3 yes. exports for political gain. Yeah, that is regurgitation for sure. That's what I was thinking of. And with that, we get to the next chapter. It's so much in three pages. Like, so really much is. happens. It's kind of crazy. A little bit. So the next chapter is also very short. I think it's four pages, maybe five, uh, kind of five. One, two, three, six, four, five, five, six. Five plus a little Five bit. and a paragraph, yeah. Like, it's barely. Just just a very short chapter as well. Fitcher walks Darrow back to his room, and it feels like a very customary kind of debrief. It feels very much like the Institute. All the while, the war between the families or the hunting of the Augustans has started at the same moment, right? Mm-hmm. But we do get Fitchner's sort of conversation. Darrow, as a youth, might have thrown a little bit more salt and shade, but it feels still kind of familiar. Like, he's not fuck youing him and kicking him in the chest or anything like that. How do you feel about Fitchner in this private moment? In the moment, up until they get to his room. He seems pretty genuine and seems much like he was at the Institute. But as soon as like, as soon as the pink is revealed, he kind of shifts back to the, this is who golds are. And this is like, he's another stereotypical gold at this point. Mm -hmm. That sort of opinion takes hold again. Yeah. And then we get a great triumphant moment after a couple of chapters that feel very dark and stressful in which the Howlers show back up. We get Severo, we get Quinn, we get Pebble, we get Clown all showing up. And it was all Mustang's plan. And it just feels good to have the gang back together, you know? The band's back together. <laughs> Gotta get the band back together, man. There's Howling, you know, it's, he, he uh, at one point, Darrow asks him about his dad and he calls him Fitchner and he says he's a shit eater. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's great. It's, what do you expect from the dude who's been sending vomiting unicorns <laughs> and shitting unicorns across the hollow net years like but also what Severo brought him yeah that's that's got some implications i unzip the bag and gawk are you mad i ask him he just howls yeah, yeah. that is or mustang, later revealed mustang brought yep. us package so. yep 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 i forgot that that's revealed here um yep yep, yep. well it, it's, it's not revealed, here. but i do love the line it's not their cook of course <laughs> it's just the callback to the cook bit in the first book is <laughs> so good so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so we get into chapter 18. Uh, Bloodstains. Bloodstains, man, is a brutal section, a brutal piece of work. Right off the bat, it's intense. Darren Gang are running through, and 
then Darrow gets really kind of like cut down from like the high point where he was, where all of his friends are back together when he runs into the room of the Augustan slaves, 20 of which have just had their faces stabbed in quick succession, just murdered, completely expendable. Before going into that, sorry, because this feeds into what we'll get into later, I think. First line is father once told me that a hell diver can never stop. You stop and the drill can jam. The fuel burns too quickly. The quota might be missed. Pierce Brown got a lot better with foreshadowing, didn't he? Yeah, that and <laughs> the fact that the chapter that we are reading next is titled Helldiver gives me some ideas of what might be happening. Very interesting. The implications that could could happen there. Yeah. I also think it speaks to the even the tone throughout this chapter, which I think it's very foreshadowed, right? Darrow really could win this chapter if he would just have continued to go forward with the plan instead of sort of like being really coy about it. Like he he obviously when he pulls out Lysander, it's a big deal kind of skipping ahead here and we'll jump back to analyze the rest. But talking about this bit specifically, if he wouldn't have fucked around with like any of it and wanted to listen to the sovereign's bullshit, he wouldn't have lost Quinn. Quinn wouldn't have gotten her, you know, head bashed into the ground so hard. She will never <laughs> breathe again. Jesus Christ. That's true. That's a moment. That's a moment of savagery. Uh, we'll probably read that when we get to it. But like, I, I think that this is just speaking to being the person of action gets you through. And then he also reflects on it. He's like, well, my dad didn't live very long, so maybe I should listen. <laughs> maybe my uncle did. And my uncle said to be cautious. So I don't know. What should I do? Um, and it kind of gives like both examples. And I do think that's interesting. And I think your context clue for chapter 20, which we don't talk about, is also interesting. Seemed interesting. I uh, I got a friend of ours into the series who is a future guest, um, and he burned through the first three books in four days. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, he was so obsessed that like he didn't work. It was really interesting. Anyway, um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. He lost his fucking mind through this book and could not stop. So I'm I'm glad you're able to kind of keep this pace and cadence and you aren't freaking trying to push me to go faster because then our episodes would go longer. They're already pretty long. Speaking of completely expendable people, kind of reminds Zero of his journey, his like vision, what 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 he's here for is to liberate them, you know? Right. Like to free that group to make society equal. You know, he doesn't believe necessarily that like all the golds need to die. He believes that everyone should be on an equal playing field. He believes the society needs to die. Yeah, right. Golds as a whole, not golds individually. Dismantle the entire pyramid. Make it so colors don't exist. I mean, it'll still take time to blend together, but you know. So take down we that also get pyramid a, scheme. So we get just intensity after intensity. We see people die. Big, big shields go up. Tactus and people or people go out hunting. Several goes out hunting. There's just so much that happens here. Lots of fights going on and finally we reach a point where we have a conversation between aja and darrow and the plan sort of unfolds aja is like you know what you should be back in your room darrow we can ignore all of this happened if you just go back in your room it's what we agreed upon the sovereign agreed with you on go back it'll be fine he's like well i would but what i got in this bag you know is the grandson. It's Lysander. <laughs> Uh-oh. Whoops. <laughs> Whoops. And he kind of also plays it off like that. You know, he's kind of like, he's kind of like, oh, what's in the bag? And she doesn't know what to even make of the conversation. She's like, what am I looking at? I, I really like Aja here, and especially in action, as we've seen her throughout this chapter in the last. She's vicious. She is totally loyal 
but a ruthless machine. Yeah, ruthless. Ruthless does it does it justice. Machine does it justice. So the gambit of abducting Lysander is interesting, and obviously Mustang was kind of thrust into it. The symbol, too, between the two of them being that gold ring where he knew that she was in on it. Because in the intro chapter of this book, we see the ring being gifted in that, like, one-page prologue. I can only imagine that being amplified. You know, we also heard that her greatest fear is dying, you know, at some point, and also that her grandson might end up like she did. So that kind of no, goes like hand her in hand, father too. Did. Like her father, sorry, like her father, who was beheaded, but also like when had to be deposed. Extra ironic, though, that like Darrow is going to behead him. You know, <laughs> I find that ironic Like, is pretending he's, to behead this 10 year old. He's going to end up like his grandfather. <laughs> yeah. In a totally different context <laughs> than what she meant. Darrow's gambit, you know, obviously pays off for him. After House Mars is saved, they're they're let out of the cell that was eventually, well, the the lake that was they were eventually going to run out of air under, right? Mm-hmm. Toxining it for some reason, rebreathers, something like that. They were fucked under the lake. There was an EMP pool that killed. That their, was it. Yeah, rebreathers killed their rebreathers. So all they had was what was in there. Yeah. So they were they were going to be screwed if they didn't get out of there. So they bargain the people of house of Mars run out of the lake, but we also get a really interesting excerpt through Aja from Octavia, our sovereign. And it's about the burning of Rhea, the governor on his throne of ice. Rhea, by the way, is an ice moon in case you didn't know that actively that we do know like has water is composed of frozen things. Mm hmm. I believe it's a Jupiter moon, moon of Jupiter, yeah. and it's been carved into a livable landscape. I find it super interesting, too, to just like think about the rim folk because they kind of put up with the most inhospitable living conditions, outer reaches people. Right. And yeah, I just find that chilling. I find that quote through Aja chilling. <laughs> There's a lot that's chilling about Aja. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that entire conversation is insane. You know, she she kind of says, like, play your chip wisely. They they start walking back and we get this scene where Lysander actually is the first one to realize what's going to happen and calls it out because he doesn't want one of his heroes that he grew up admiring to die, even though he's being abducted by one of his other heroes. Still interesting. <laughs> a, a big deal, no less. So in a flash, Aja lunges forward quicker than any cat ever born she grabs quinn's hair frantically quinn brings her razor around to fend the giant woman off but she's too slow aja slams her head into the ground with her left hand punches her temple armor fist on bone four times before it can even blink quinn's legs kick and twitch and she curls inward like a dying spider contorting from the seizures aja backs away watching me with a smile (laughs) just rokes girlfriend a character that's been with us since 100 pages in the first book rook's got some shitty luck rook's Rook's got (laughs) some real shitty luck dude's the poet and he's getting the shit kicked out of him bad bad time really bad time for rook yeah man i just i there there are moments in the series that are incredibly brutal and this one stands out in my head as so quick that you can like imagine it right like just taking your head slamming into the ground and then just punching the shit out of her four times and then just backing off and smiling <laughs> like just yeah. considering it from the other perspective though he's abducting the air i mean that there is that he's not quite innocent in this situation yeah. <laughs> yeah he's definitely not innocent i think it's important to point out that like yes darrow is rebelling against a really bad society but also like doing bad things so it's not like you could win but 
he's doing the right thing, a right thing at the very least. But yeah, that's uh, that's where this chapter ends. It's at least a little bit resolved. It yeah, it's it's not fully resolved, but it appears as though we kind of know the outcome. The situation Um, is stabilized. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, she's likely comatose or brain dead is what it appears. Right. Somewhere in between. So we go into chapter 19, which is our last chapter for the week. Stork. It is a relatively short chapter, but a lot of things kind of happen to it in inside of it. They're kind of quick bits. So Quinn is lying on the ground as a gambit for Darrow. You know, out of all the people the word that gambit so many fucking times this episode. Did I? Well, I, I definitely used it a lot talking about <laughs> Lysander. You're probably right. So the gambit, the bet, um, the the wager, uh, the wager, Darrow's wager. The man who throws cards at things. <laughs> yeah. No, wait, not that gambit. It's a very different gambit. Mm-hmm. Those are super powered cards. We're not talking about the X-Men. Anyway, um, hmm. out of all the people that could turn to get her, the Jackal is maybe the most interesting one, right? Like, I can see the claim there. I think it's probably protecting his own assets. He is yeah. in a partnership with darrow he knows that if given the opportunity darrow would go back to save quinn thereby falling directly into the trap of the sovereign so he takes the initiative and goes and does it himself so darrow totally risk himself yeah he he makes the decision for darrow do you think there's anything like the jackal has kind of some bigger moments in this section i'd say than most that are very different than the character that we know, right? Like he he is kind of being the like on-call nurse or doctor for a lot of this. Um, do you think he's got like any element of genuine compassion or do you think that this is all strategic I mean, positioning? It can be a little bit of both. I think it's mostly strategic, but I'm sure there's a little bit of actual compassion there. Like despite his description as a monster throughout the Institute, he is still a human and went through similar like situations that Mustang did. Yeah, true, true. So if you even like compare those two against each other, like it totally has has elements of sense. Mm-hmm. I think the other part of that that I would pick out as well is that the Jackal has made a big point in the post-Institute life in which, you know, you're removed from the Institute now and you can make other friends like the the allies or enemies that you made there is not the end game. While, yeah, the Jekyll did some evil fucked up shit. Um, regrettably, he's not necessarily entirely bad. Right. Right. I mean, he's still a, he's still a maniacal fucker who killed the fuck out of Pax. So I'm angry about that still. So is Darrow. Um, so is sort of the rest of the Telemannus is kind of. But also but, the yeah. the description or the sort of explanation that he gives of I'd never seen him before and he was in my way and in the way of my goal. So I dispatched him like mm-hmm. that. It's cold. Sure. But I don't think it was intentionally. I don't think he killed Pax to hurt Darrow emotionally i think he killed pax to have the opportunity to hurt darrow physically which i i think we're kind of understating or at least darrow is in his explanation for the same reason that cassius is pissed about julian um the same albeit it's family 
It's family, but or also you, the same sort of justification can be made between the Jackal and Pax in that situation. Like, it, it wasn't a personal vendetta against Darrow to kill Pax. I, I definitely like that on in, in terms of like an over overview of Jackal, especially going into these sections, is sort of like the utilitarian aspect of the way that he's behaving. So Roke inside of this entire section is just kind of physically, you can feel him like breaking or crumbling like an overstretched Jenga tower on the page, um, mm. especially as he watches like Quinn seize and contort and everything else and like trying to figure out what to do and just frozen in different moments. Just it's crazy. We also get to see everyone else's kind of horrified reaction to seeing one of the other main howlers be maimed for the first time. Yeah. Was she always a howler or did she kind of inherit that position? I think she inherited it later. Like clearly she went to Pluto. I mean, at the Institute, she wasn't one of the original howlers, right? I don't think so. I would need to double check that. That's a good question. So she was she was one of the original people, though, that worked with Darrow and Cassius. Right. Um, but the, the Howlers are kind of a yep, specific, a specific No, she was not. She is. She is obviously a part of the house, but she she joined the Howlers explicitly post the Institute. So we we get this moment, which, you know, after you finish the chapter, I'm kind of thankful that we get is the moment that where Severo is beating the shit out of Tactus. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, he like kicks him in the balls because he's insulting Quinn uh, and just like absolutely tackles him down to the ground in a series of jujitsu moves that are really cool over like three or four lines. I'll cut your balls off and jam them in your eye sockets, he says, if you talk about Quinn like that again. Just a very big deal in both terms of like how protective Dar- or how protective Severo is of the Howlers, as well as like he's willing to put anyone in their place. And also, it's kind of his funny jokes. It's not just him putting putting tactics in his place. It was kind of Severo having feelings towards Quinn that he'd never he knew he'd never be able to act on. I don't know if it's never be able to act on. So because like she was she was very much like her and Roke were a thing or like a unit. But I think that there was there was a level deep platonic friendship because she never insulted him in the Institute or like called him goblin or anything else. Right. Didn't look at him as lower or diminutive. So he stands quietly in his armor, watching us watching Roke hold the girl several loves, but has never told the girl. Yeah, he could that's never what have. I mean. You're, you're totally right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the passage I was thinking of. So <laughs> it's not just him kind of defending the honor of everybody in general. Several has feelings for. Her. Yeah, that's, that's also true. I think he would, he would do this for most, but especially Quinn. Yeah, I could see it. Yeah. One of the things that I think is really interesting here, too, is it does seem out of character for Severo. The response is in character for Tactus. Like, it's an extreme response from Severo. It's definitely not out of character. It's extreme. Mm-hmm. But Tactus's response is still funny, even though he's being choked out and everything else. Brother always said, keep your eye on the ball um, <laughs> as he, like, gags out, you know, which is multi-textual right because it's it's both like the the eyeballs bit um but also it's literally the other portion of this which is about the ball being lysander that he oh, now runs out with oh shit yeah right the football so it's 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 a great 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 line from tactus um 
that totally that totally hints at it. It's just it's so casual. It's right there. Now I for the rest remember of the- reading it and feeling like it was out of place. That makes total fucking sense now. Shit. Yeah, it's it's both Tactus's brand of humor and it's also the reason that he's there. Like the reason that he's even in the way as opposed to helping is because he wants leverage. He wants his own way out. Yeah. You know, it's it's great. We also haven't talked about this much before we get into the final two bits of, of, of this chapter. We haven't talked about Victra much at all. But in this section, um, Victra's entire family, the rest of the Julii's sell out with the sovereign. They're bought off. Um, and so they don't partake. Victra still stays loyal, though, to Darrow because she has feelings for him. <laughs> yeah. And is is very loyal throughout this entire thing. What's your read on her now that we've gotten, you know, 180 pages? She wasn't in the first book at all. How do you feel? How I feel about her, I think, is becoming irrelevant because I think everything changes with Mustang back in the picture. Okay. So how you feel is you feel like it was a relationship out because Mustang didn't exist. I think that was the goal. I think that was Victor's goal was or fantasy, I guess. I, I think she wanted something to happen between Darrow and her and knew that since since Mustang is out of the picture at the moment, that opportunity is there technically. But if that mm-hmm. sort of hope is squashed, I think I think she'll become very unpredictable going forward. Interesting. OK, as a as a final kind of note on her that I want to talk about is I really like her little line. She says to Severo prime work and she's he says back to her slag off cow (laughs) (laughs) and you know Severo has a number of great lines in the section i'll bring up another one about cavex in a second uh but i really like the response where she like has this aside with dara where she's like who's the little one she asks me to slip into the cabin and close the door i tell her the rage knight's son nasty little man i don't think he likes me don't take it personally (laughs) (laughs) it's just it's it is Severo. It's so embodying of Severo. But I also like Victra's sense of humor here, too. Yeah, it, totally. Totally. I know we've talked a lot about Pierce Brown's writing and improvements and everything, but this chunk seems to be so far the most polished and the most fluid and the most clean of anything we've read so far. Yeah, I I think I've gone on record a couple of times saying that this is my favorite book in the series. Um, and... I I kind of stand by that. I mean, he still like improves as a writer in some of the events like our magnitude's different than this. Um, and, you know, that that is what it is. Uh, but the like human elements of the story are so well executed. It feels to me like Empire Strikes Back. It just feels so good. Mm-hmm. I love it. Severo's banter that was a top notch with Cabex. You must be Pax's father. Sorry he went. He's a man I might have died for. But I see he got his good looks from his mother. <laughs> <laughs> and not insulted. You know, like it's it's just funny. Kevex isn't sure if he's been insulted. <laughs> like, it's just perfect. It's good to have Severo back, you know? Oh, it's great. I've been wanting to see the meme lord in action. We, we've we got our two final moments here, though, to talk about. Uh, one that I really appreciate is the conversation with that Augustus has with Lysander about his eldest son, Claudius's death at the hand of Carnus Bologna. And it's just fucking brutal, man. He does not hold back. He puts on a face of and a tone of talking to a child, but he does not let the uh, he does not leave much up to the imagination. 
No, not at all. So like, it's like he's talking with a child, but at the same time, he is, it's like, it's like telling a child a horror story, right? But not leaving out any of the detail. You were going through all of the steps and all the motions. Well, a large young man from the house Bologna by the name of Carnus took liberties with a certain young woman my son was courting. My son took umbrage and challenged Carnus to a duel. In the end, when my boy was broken and bleeding, Carnus kneeled, cupped my son's head, and smashed it on the cobbled stones till it broke open and all the specialness dripped out. You can just like imagine that kind of like fairy tale tone as he's talking through it, but like it ends in a very grim fairy tale kind of way. <laughs> like, oh, uh, the specialness dripped out. Is that your plan for me, my liege? Lysander asks bravely. <laughs> At least he understands. Like, he understands the feuds and the sort of tensions between houses and the fact that he is essentially a political hostage at this point. So I think what's really interesting is you get kind of two different, very different, but also I think kind of interesting perspectives here, right? Like Lysander is a 10-year-old who is very, very intelligent, very with it and understands, as you'd mentioned. And you also get the sort of very rationed response from Nero right after that, where he's like, I'm only a monster when it's practical. He reminds me of like a vampire. Kinda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He kind of has like the statelyhood of Dracula. Yeah. You're, you're definitely right. That's totally accurate. Especially like uh, top of page 177. Grandmother says you're a liar. Ironic. You will tell her we've treated you well, I hope. If I am well treated. <laughs> fair enough. Uh-huh. <laughs> Victra, take him to the passenger's hold. Like it, he, <sighs> But yeah, stately, I think is the right word to Right way to describe mm-hmm. it, but vampire-like. Man, I love I love Augustus in this section. I think that it also shows a lot of his character. Definitely. So final question before we get into our predictions, or final thing to talk about, is the big final moment in which Tactus volunteers to take our little boy, Lysander, to the brig because he's missing his brothers and hasn't talked to them in a while, so he can talk to this boy, and Tactus jumps out of the fucking back of the ship with him. I, I think we can talk about Lysander within your predictions, but we've got three predictions and then your general thoughts before we wrap up. Yep. The first one is the most obvious question. What is to be done about Tactus? Darrow's jumping out of the fucking ship. He's not in a position where the proctors can just stop him from launching through the windshield of the other ship like he was at the beginning of the uh, of the book. He is untethered and I think he's going to do something reckless. Man, it's really interesting that the chapter is called Helldiver, huh? <laughs> okay, so your official prediction is that I Darrow... I not put that together either, the diver part. Okay, well, putting all the pieces in front of you and also assembling the puzzle, yep. even though I bought it for you as a present. Well, uh, you were always bad at <laughs> gifts. Jesus. This uh, factual. So am I. So Darrow <laughs> like, I don't is... know why jabbing it dude i yeah whenever i buy a gift for someone i'm like here it is and i don't even wrap it and i just hand it to him and i'm like i know christmas is in two weeks but i already gave it to you so no guilt you got your gift i don't give a shit (laughs) that's me um so darrow's on the hunt now is your official prediction yep that's your that's your bad drink okay yep uh what did octavia glean from darrow i think i touched on this earlier but I, i i think the biggest thing is that he reacted, physically reacted when the Sons of Ares were brought up and she just didn't quite get to ask the right questions to dig into that. 
But I, I, I think yeah. she's kind of on the scent of him in connection with the Sons of Ares. Okay. So on the scent of the Sons of Ares with Darrow is our answer. But third question, Octavia mentions that she's played this game 71 times, but only one person came out that she trusted. Who do you think is the one other who got through this game? Definitely mentioned this before. And uh, Nero I'm putting Al it in stone this is my answer. I justified myself out of saying Aja mm-hmm. based on her reaction to things. The only other guess I have would be Mustang, but I don't think she went through it. Okay. So Nero, because it'll also make okay. a really interesting story. I uh, I definitely understand. So any anything else? Anything else? I don't think so. We we did pretty no. pretty extensive no, I, uh, dude, I commentary think, on things. I think this was good in all of the right ways. I really wish Roke had mentioned something to do with like unicorn, like horn dicks or whatever. You know, actually, here's a really good question. Um, <laughs> last we saw, this has nothing to do with the unicorn dicks. You brought up Roke, and I I should have I should have thought of this. So Roke. Last we saw him, he was drugged by Darrow. Ooh, that's a good point. How the fuck is that going to play out? He's going to get into the war room, some sort of war room, with Severo and Roke, and they are going to have a very frank conversation that maybe isn't going to go into Darrow being a red, but I think it will go into Darrow having connections to the Sons of Ares. Okay. Okay. That is a great question that I'm excited that I thought up at the last second here. Woohoo. Well, that is everything that we are going to cover this week. So next week, we are going to be reading through chapter 24. That will bring us to the end of part two. Uh, Remember through, not until we're doing through. So you should be able to break it right at the section break. Yep. So when you see part three conquer, stop reading. So that's where we'll leave you this week. Uh, But I hope that you've enjoyed this episode with us. We had a great time recording it. You can really help us grow by recommending us to any number of friends. That's kind of our big point is just recommending us to a friend or family is a big deal for us or leaving us a review wherever you like to listen. As he just mentioned, word of mouth is above everything the most important. Places like iTunes, iHeartRadio. I don't think there are Spotify reviews, but... No, not yet. There's a place to review us. Leaving us a five-star review will inevitably allow us to reach more people because of the way it recommends shows to people on the site. Additionally, our website, wordsandwhiskey.show, has pictures and recipes for all the cocktails that we drink on the show, as well as our show notes and our schedule and pictures of us and our bios and a whole bunch of stuff. So there's a lot of fun stuff there. There is. And I really think like you can tell the cocktail photos that I take and the ones that PJ takes. Well, it also takes mine look PJ or Crossland. Yeah, you can also sort and look at like PJ's superior cocktails by his name because our webmaster is incredible. Um, and has done a great job building out our website. In all honesty, if you like our show, you should just go look at the website so we can pump up Tim's ego a little bit more for him. (laughs) In addition to our website, we've got social media on Twitter and Instagram. We also got an email recommendation that I 100% picked up and I'm excited to read. We'd love to hear your suggestions. Thank you, Adam. We're really uh, glad to have each and every one of you listening. Absolutely. Absolutely.